Well, those of you that have been here for uh, some length of time have heard me say repeatedly uh, why we believe that expository preaching is the best method in order to preach the whole counsel of God. You know, it's in vogue today to preach felt needs, topical things, a new you for a new year, and ten steps to put a perpetual smile upon your face. And I'm not saying that topics have no place. We do go through those here. Uh, But the danger in that over a long time, as a fallen mortal standing up here doing the teaching, it's very easy to slip into personal hobby horses or merely to see one side of a truth. In preaching the whole counsel of God, it's, it's not just covering what God says, but it's presenting it in balance. I know of no way to be balanced, for instance, on sovereignty and free will without teaching the books that deal with that and teaching all of those books. It literally forces us in to hearing the Word of God in all of its facets. Now, it's always an interesting thing when you come to which book to go to next. Sometimes I feel like Criswell, he said it wasn't that he had nothing to preach. He felt like there were so many amazing things in the Scriptures that he's scared he was going to die before he got to them all. You know, in many ways, it's like picture standing in a museum full of beautiful artwork and there's 66 paintings surrounding you And all of them are flawlessly beautiful, and all of them present a unified theme, but yet every one of them is uniquely individual. Some have more dark paint strokes than others, and some, some are so bright they almost blind you, and you can only look at one of them at a time. You can't even be like a gecko lizard and split your eyes up and look at two. You can only look at one. So I've been wrestling with uh, where we're going to go next. I believe the Lord would have us uh, spend the summer walking through the epistle of James. I want to say something as a side note, and I say this because I hope it's helpful. Maybe this will whet an appetite uh, in a different area. I was really, really leaning towards uh, going through 1 Corinthians. I want to talk a little bit about why before we move forward. It's not because I think we're a problem church. It's really not. But if you catalog the topics covered in that epistle, it's hard to find a more fitting list of things, uh, particularly that American churches need to understand. I mean, it really, there's many, many proofs of the inspiration of Scripture, but one of those that never ceases to amaze me Uh, You can take a letter written to a literal assembly almost 2,000 years ago. And the names and the location and some of the specifics have changed, but the core principles, the kernel of the teaching, the truth of God is every bit as poignant as it is now. So I want to just illustrate that before moving forward. What, What all is Paul dealing with in the epistle of 1 Corinthians? Well, he begins with dealing with some of their sectarianism, how they'd set up heroes. A picture Paul comes to Corinth and preaches, and 
after the service, here comes a collection of people. Oh, Brother Paul, we just feel moved to tell you that you're our favorite preacher. You know, you're, you're so much more polished than, than Peter. He's kind of rough, that fisherman. And your brilliant mind, there, there's no question you're far more intelligent than him. Matter of fact, I don't know why he was called before you, but that's just saying. And the fact that you were a Pharisee, why, that resonates with us. That gives you real clout. So we just want to tell you, Paul, that you're our favorite. You know, many a minister falls on his face right there and stumbles. But it's interesting, Paul, rather than being flattered, is actually grieved by their carnality. <laughs> He tells them, you're carnal and walking like men. You're walking in the flesh. You're making the wrong comparisons. In chapter 2, he talks about what is important. What was he trying to impress on them? It wasn't oratory. It wasn't brilliance. It wasn't degrees after his name. He wanted their faith in one thing, and that was in the power of God. That was all he cared about. Chapter 3 brings up the stewardship that's coming to all of us at the judgment seat of Christ when our entire life is dumped out. And everything is tested by the flaming eyes of Christ, whether it's gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. Chapter 4, Paul's defending his ministry against accusations. He had a lot of accusations. And by the way, that sets a precedent there that it's not always wrong for a Christian to defend themselves. There are forums where that's fitting. Uh, Christ not speaking a word before his accusers, and Paul speaking many words to his accusers, don't contradict. The setting and the reasoning was different, so chapters like that help us with that. Uh, chapter 5 deals with flagrant sin in the church and how to handle that. Do you think the average megachurch today cares anything about dealing with rampant sin within its borders? Friends, many are so consumed with being tolerant and unified, wrongly defined, that they will not deal with leaven. But Paul says, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Here's a principle to the United States of America. God is far more interested in a pure church than a big church. Far more interested. If you have to pick. Chapter 6 deals with litigation between believers. What do I do when a professing Christian rips me off? Hmm? I've been a contractor for about 14 years. And yes, I've been ripped off more than once. But being ripped off by professing Christians, that'll make you wrestle with 1 Corinthians 6. I've had to do that. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with human sexuality and divorce and remarriage and the complications that are contained therein. And by the way, rampant divorce isn't a new thing on the earth. It's relatively new in America. But anywhere paganism takes root and immorality runs rampant, it becomes an issue. And by the way, let me say a word to the young people in passing. Many of you in the next 10 years are going to be married. 
go overboard to do things right. You know marriages where both sets of parents are in total agreement? Where church leadership and the godly mature people that you've known your whole life, where they're all lining up to tell you this is the will of God? That's a rarity. The world will tell you, worry about finding the right person. You know what God wants to tell you? Worry about becoming the right person. Become a real disciple of Christ. Learn to study the Bible. Learn to pray. Learn to obey Him unflinchingly. And I guarantee you, if that's your focus, the Lord will bend heaven and earth to put the right person right in front of you. And if mature saints and authority figures are telling you you're going the wrong direction, you better listen. Sometimes I wonder why young people would make literally the second most important decision in their life that changes the whole trajectory of their existence without doing everything to make sure it's God's will. Chapters 8 through 10, all important stuff. It's a companion passage to Romans 14. What do we do with uh, culturally normal things that we wonder if they really mesh with our Christian profession? Again, broader evangelicalism left the rails years ago, and they've adopted the philosophy that the broadest possible position is always best. In other words, if you want to do it, well, you have liberty in Christ because you feel like it, and anybody who challenges that is one of those dirty legalists. And by the way, that position is abhorrent to anybody who actually knows their Bible and walks by faith and not by emotion. But what about the opposite? Here's somebody that says, always take the strictest position. That's always best. I agree it is a lot of the time. But take that too far, you end up in an Amish community minimizing the gospel and majoring on the externals. That's not good either. So Paul's asked, what about things offered to idols? It takes three entire chapters to answer that question. Not a yes or no, but a spiritual reasoning process to show them how to think through these things. And by the way, if Paul had just said yes or no, that wouldn't help us today. Uh, last I checked, when you went to Walmart this week, there wasn't a sign that said, this was offered to Dagon in the temple last week. You see, so the exact circumstances have changed, but boy, we run into other issues. Friends, listen, it's spiritual babies that say, I want to do it. It must be right. Mature people know how to go through those principles and exercise discernment and choose based on the conscience of others and the glory of God and the spreading of the gospel and how this appears to a watching world. And chapter 11, of course, deals with communion. What a precious passage. What should be the atmosphere of communion? Big party? Last I checked, gathering together to examine my heart for hidden sin while I think about a brutal slaughtering of the Son of God on a cross isn't much of a party. Especially when you add in the fact that God actually inflicts with physical infirmity and sometimes death based on abuses of the Lord's table. Friend, it's not a party when we take communion. It's serious. 
Chapters 12 through 14 deal with spiritual gifts, the right exercise, and limitations on them. And my, the errors on that are massive. Some of you may remember these billboards in town. A couple years ago, drove me nuts. Biblicalchurchmeeting.org. And they sounded oh so spiritual, but on examining that, I'm telling you, I was begging God to get those cursed things off our streets. Do you know why? They were based upon a total butchering of 1 Corinthians 14 to the neglect of the rest of the New Testament and was actually tearing down a right view of the local church. Important stuff. Chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. What are the implications of that? And so on. So anyway, I just wanted to touch on that to illustrate the Bible is very, very, very relevant. As much as I wanted to go through that now, we'll have to wait later. Uh, but let's move on into the book of James. And uh, we'll just do a little survey of the book, give some of the background information, and Lord willing, we'll uh, dive into it uh, in subsequent weeks. But notice how he begins. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, immediately we have to ask which James... There are several Jameses in the New Testament. As far as I can tell, this is written by none other than James, the son of Mary and Joseph, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ while he was living on this earth. Now, why would not James mention that? Why wouldn't he flash those credentials? James, the esteemed earthly brother of the Lamb of God. First of all, that wouldn't have proved anything. I mean, does being the relative of a famous person make you different? No. Does being merely around Christ? I'll tell you, many people are around the things of Christ for much of their life. Still remain scoffers and mockers till their dying day. You know, there's no evidence to show that any of the Lord's brothers and sisters believed on Him while He was walking this earth in the flesh. None of them. No, Mary was not the perpetual virgin. She had many other children. John 7, 5 says, For neither did His brothers believe in Him. Now, that fact from James's past was no doubt a source of shame for him. Can you imagine seething with bitterness and hatred while you grow up in the same house with God in the flesh? Sitting there at the same meals, playing as, as they were children. Uh, from the time of the Lord's Bar Mitzvah at age 12, where he was asking questions to the religious leaders, until he came out in his public teaching ministry was 18 years where Brother James had access to him without the crowds. Say, Mom, James could have asked, uh, tell me again how my uh, brother came about being born? About the angels and miracles surrounding that? Oh, he'd been given lots of light, but he'd been one of them that thought his older brother was insane. A source of embarrassment to the family. 
especially when he's publicly crucified between two flagrant criminals. Picture one of your family members hanging there naked on a cross with hundreds of thousands of people marching by saying, oh, that's your brother? Until his eyes were opened. He wasn't proud of that. 1 Corinthians 15.7 gives the catalog of those the Lord appeared to once He rose from the dead. And He appears to James and then all of the apostles. Now apparently that had something to do with James finally believing and submitting to who his earthly brother really was. You see, he's no longer a scoffer, but he's certainly not the proud brother He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'd say, you want to know the relationship? That's my master right there. Now, eventually, this James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council, so-called, you see him as one of the prominent voices. And then in Galatians chapter 1, it gives the timeline of Paul after he's converted. In fact, if you just read through the book of Acts, you think Paul went straight from conversion to preaching. There was actually an interim there that's filled in elsewhere. So he spends three years sort of in seclusion. And uh, by the way, that's not necessarily a pattern for today. Paul was called to be an apostle, which means he had to see the risen Christ physically. The New Testament church was in infancy and the New Testament was not yet written. Timothy's discipleship was a far better pattern. Paul's was rather unique. But here's what's said. Paul went to see Peter after three years, he says, and he abode with him 15 days. So Paul spent about two weeks as Peter's roommate, presumably asking him questions. And then he says, other of the apostles saw I none. Now, side note, apostles is used a little more loosely there, but he says, other apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. So James had at least something to do with the discipleship of this apostle Paul that we know of. Now, like Hebrews, this epistle is also addressed to Jewish believers. As far as I know, it was written fairly early in the New Testament canon, somewhere in the middle of the 40s A.D., uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years after the Lord's crucifixion, or a little less. And he says that these uh, 12 tribes were scattered abroad. Now, he doesn't give the exact circumstances, but comparing historical records, it's at least a decent assumption that this was under the persecution of Herod that's mentioned in Acts 12, Herod Agrippa. Remember, he takes James, one of the other Jameses, uh, the brother of John, one of those sons of thunder, and he cuts his head off. And it's presumed that this epistle was written during that scattering of brethren. And uh, 15 times in the book, he calls his audience brother. And it was very common terminology among first century Jews. The book of James contains more than 40 allusions to the Old Testament, and it contains 20 more to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. Very, very Jewish in nature. Now, we believe that Scripture is inspired of God. 
But we also understand God did not override human personality. He created human personality to pin exactly what he wanted as he breathed the scriptures. Uh, You read the book of James, you might conclude James was not big on small talk. Uh, Maybe it was the heavy burden on his heart. In fact, it's interesting, Jude, the Lord's half-brother also, same exact characteristic. Short epistle, no, no real introduction, gets right down to business, and it's blunt. Uh, Maybe it was the heavy burden on his heart. Paul did something similar in Galatians. Usually Paul was long on introductions, but in Galatians he had his war paint on. Uh, He went right to dealing with issues because they were so heavy. Maybe it was James' personality. Maybe I wonder if it was the fact that he had squandered decades while he actually shared a physical house with the Son of God. Now he looked at his age and the trajectory of the world and the years that had been wasted. His burden just burned in his heart. And what you see, the sum total of his greeting is just one word, and that's what the word is. Greeting. And then down to brass tacks. He sort of turns on the fire hose. And the very first statement is one that runs completely contrary to human nature. Paraphrasing it, he says, choose to be extremely happy when various trials are thrown at you. Huh? How's that for starting a conversation? And he ends with confronting sin in a brother's life. Now I'm sure most of you have noticed faith is an extremely popular word today. We hear a lot about people of faith, groups of faith, faith-based organizations, etc. Pseudo-religion, that is anything other than true Bible-based Christianity, tends to define faith in terms of how it feels. And by the way, if you have to tell somebody how much faith you have, you don't have very much faith. Faith is not just simply believing something very strongly. Bible faith is consistently defined by who it is placed in, that's the big thing, But beyond that, Bible faith is defined in terms of how it behaves. If I were to ask you, go to the chapter in Scripture that defines faith. Uh, Most of you correctly would go to Hebrews 11. Certainly you can go to other places, but uh, that's the one chapter we think of as the faith chapter. Now besides some introductory statements, what is that entire chapter How is it defining faith? By a catalog of people showing what faith looked like in their everyday life. Some of you have heard me mention this before. It's not original with me. But here's a good definition of Bible faith. It's the attitude of heart and mind that submits to and obeys God because it expects Him to be exactly how He's revealed Himself to be in 
His written Word. Every, every part of that's important. It's an attitude of heart and mind that submits to and obeys God because it expects Him to be exactly what He's revealed Himself to be in His written Word. Well, that's really the main theme of James. Here's what it is. The behavior of Bible faith. It's what faith looks like in shoe leather. Now, somebody has said very accurately, you do not believe what you do not live. Somebody says, I I believe God answers prayer. Do you consistently spend time and effort and energy praying? Do you really believe that then? I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the singular message that opens the eyes of the blind and gives eternal life. If you never make any effort to get that message into the hearts and minds of the lost, do you really believe that? Somebody says, oh, I, I believe the local church is important. It's an amazing thing in 1 Timothy 3, what's said. And by the way, the context there isn't some nebulous, universal, worldwide entity that nobody knows what it is. The context in 1 Timothy 3 is pastors and deacons in a local assembly. But then he says, this is how you're to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, if I really believe that, how am I going to treat the local assembly? Our actions, our priorities, our choices, whatever self-discipline we do or don't have often speaks much, much louder than what's coming out of this. I think as a parent... Are my children going to base practical theology on everything I say or on what I do? You know, it's interesting. James says this is written to the 12 tribes. Now, there's more than one way to divide up this book, but... It actually divides fairly naturally into 12 different sections that describe the behavior of genuine faith. I'm just going to touch on each of these briefly. Of course, it's a subject to the Lord's redirection. And it's always a balance. I I don't want to rush through it, but we do want to get through it because there's so much more of the Scriptures. Some of you remember the illustration I gave maybe a few years ago that If every Sunday morning we covered six verses of the Scriptures on our journey through, it would take us 92 years to get through it. I don't know about you, I don't plan to be around that long. So sometimes we have to adjust our speed a bit. But let me just touch on these 12 topics, and then I'll just say a little bit about them and we'll be done. Topic number one. Faith recognizes the purpose of trials and endures them. 
Number two, faith recognizes the sources of temptation and rejects them. Number three, put this back on. Number three, faith obeys the written word of God. Number four, faith removes discrimination. Number five, faith proves itself by works. Number six, faith controls the tongue. Number seven, faith produces wisdom. Number eight, faith produces humility. Number nine, faith produces an actual dependence on the God of heaven. Number ten, faith awaits Christ's return. Number eleven, faith prays for the afflicted. And number twelve, faith confronts the erring brother. You talk about a wide range of areas to demonstrate real faith. Let's just give some commentary on these as kind of an overview, and then Lord willing, we will get more in depth in the following weeks. Number one, we find in chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, that faith recognizes a purpose for trials and endures them. Of course, verse 2, well known. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That's the word reckon. It's, it's an accounting term. It's like looking at your bank balance. If you were to pull up, remember years ago, I was resistant to online banking. I don't want all that online. Are you kidding me? And now it's become so easy. Anyways, but if I pull that page up and it says whatever number's in there, doesn't matter how I feel, I feel like there should be 150,000 there. No, I reckon that to be accurate because that is based on a fairly solid foundation. Count it all joy, reckon it. Count it, decide by faith to rejoice when trials come because faith is able to cry amen when those come because it knows God has a perfect end in view. Because the trying of your faith worketh patience. But then he says, let patience have. Notice the terminology. Let. Yield to it. Let patience have her perfect work, her complete work so that ye may be perfect or complete, lacking nothing. It says we yield to God's purposes in those tunnels that completion is produced. He says you may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. So trials are God's good gift recognized by faith so that we may be more fitted for eternity. Let's say you parents, uh, we've had a number of, uh, strange medical issues with our children. Some of you have too. How many of you like seeing your child knocked out under anesthesia? How many of you like seeing your child go under the knife for surgery? What kind of parents are you? Why do you do that? You see, it grieves us to do it, but we know it must happen. Friends, do you realize it pains the heart of God to have to send you pain? 
But do you know why he does it? Because he loves you. And he wants his image impressed on you. And he knows that's eternally best. Cast all your care upon him. Why? Not because he can do something about it. That's true. He careth for you. Friends, we have a high priest that is very, very touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Faith understands that in His love for us, He will not withhold any good thing. By the way, He defines good. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. And sometimes God's definition of good includes trials that make our faith more complete. And isn't it true that few things make us feel our own stupidity and insufficiency like ongoing tribulation? I mean, how far into an inexplicable trial do you have to be before you feel like you have a spiritual IQ of three? I've been there. Some of you have too. In context, it's talking about wisdom and trials that promise in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally. He pours it out. All right, number two, faith recognizes the sources of temptation and rejects them. Chapter 1, verses 13 through the end of it. Of course, we have three great enemies, world, flesh, and the devil. But I would say, based on this passage and others, like Romans 7, the greatest of those is probably the indwelling sin nature. I find it staggering in this passage. You could say there's an allusion to the other two. But it's mainly the fleshly nature that's in view. Well, how does faith view temptation? Uh, Verse 13, it doesn't blame it on God. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. Do people do that? They do it all the time. By the way, hyper-Calvinism does that. I guess God's sovereign. He just made me walk right into this. What a bunch of baloney. It's God's sovereign, all right. But don't you dare call God the author of sin. See, this is why balance is important. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. Someone has said, the devil tempts you that you may fall. God tests you so that you will stand. That's very, very, very good theology. So faith does not say, well, this must be God's fault. I guess the Lord put me here, just can't stand against it, baloney. No excuses. Someone says, I had to do it. No, you didn't. I mean, that's where that, that started in the Garden of Eden. Adam falls. What does he say? The woman you gave me. Everything was fine until you sent her, and look what happened now. Uh, Verse 14, faith recognizes the universality of temptation. Every man is tempted by his own lust. There's not a person here where the sin nature is not going to drag on you like cords of steel. Verse 15, faith understands that in order for sin to take place, you have to yield. And the keys of the will gate are in your own pocket. It's interesting the terminology, when lust hath conceived. Why that word? takes two parties to conceive. Sin takes temptation to sin, and your yieldedness, 
which produces this ugly monster called sin. It's an important distinction, friend. When temptation comes, that is not sin. It's when you yield to it that it's sin. All right, number three, faith obeys the Word of God. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Side note, he says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Uh, If you have an anger problem, you have a sin problem. It's not your circumstances. It's not people. It's not your hair color. It's not your ethnicity. It's S-I-N, sin. Until you deal with it like that, you're never going to have victory, by the way. Look what he says in verse 22, though. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. You mean it's possible to know the Bible forwards and backwards and to hear a hundred sermons a week and be nothing more than self-deceived? Yes. That, that, is, that is terrifying. I mean, if there's not a proper effort at real change as a result of what you hear, you're going nowhere. Of course, he uses the illustration of a mirror. Say a guy goes to the mirror and he's got this huge pus pocket growing in his forehead. And he looks in there and he goes, boy, that's a bummer. Time to go to work. And every day the thing grows and somebody says, boy, you got that funky thing on your head. And he says, oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. You need to deal with it. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Oh, of course, what good's a mirror if you're not going to do anything about what you see? <laughs> May as well get rid of the mirror. He says, pure religion, verse 27, and undefiled before God in this. How does real, if you, you and I don't like the word religion, but he does use it here, talking about what's real Christianity look like? It really, to, service to others and a passionate desire after a holy life, unspotted from the world. Friend, listen, faith, faith does not want this world's filth sticking to it. Does not. It's unspotted. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, faith removes discrimination. He says, have not faith with respect of persons. Of course, he gives the illustration. Here comes a poor man. He walks into the church meeting. And they tell him, uh, you just here, you sit on the floor. Here comes one of the rich brethren. They're just smooching his hand and they're clear in the aisle and they give him the the best seat in the house, and they give the announcement, say, hey, just want to say we got the brother so-and-so. Of course, he wouldn't want me to mention it, but you know, he did give $4 million in the offering last year. I just want to humbly acknowledge that, and he wants to humbly raise his hand and say he did that. And James is going, are you kidding me? When the Lord Himself walked through this world in abject poverty and yet at the same time owns all the wealth of the world, how can you possibly think like that? And now that would have been especially poignant to a Jewish audience. Listen, Jews had prejudice flowing very heavily through their veins if you follow the New Testament. Think about who was a Jew prejudiced against? 
Everybody who wasn't Jewish. That's a pretty big list. Even if you were half Jewish. What do they call the Samaritans? Dogs? Half-breeds. I remember what the, the disciples asked the Lord. It's really a shocking question, but it does show how they thought. Lord, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What kind of question is that? Did he sin somehow to be born blind? And you're reading that and you're going, what? If I understand what they were asking, did, did God know that he was going to be such a terrible person that he just struck him with blindness before he was born? Or, or was it his parents' sin? Because obviously they did something wrong. The Lord says, no, no, no. I've got a purpose for that. It had nothing to do. Oh, sure, he was a sinner like everybody, but it had nothing to do with some special sin. Now, James comes down like a hammer blow on those that favor the rich. He tells them you've despised the poor. And then he goes through historically what rich men have done. Cast out Christianity, despise the Lord. Not all rich men, mind you, but as a, as a general category... Friends, that's certainly a problem, at least in American religion. He mentions in verse 8-9, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you respect persons, you commit sin. And there's hundreds of broader applications. On what basis can we be discriminatory? A financial status. Ethnic background. Nationality. Gender. Family relations. Occupation. Length of time as a Christian. How many generations of Christians in a family? Montanans. Oh, you're from California? Must be a liberal. Oh, do you know that? Pastors can do this. How large of a church they lead. How much money they raise in the offering plate. How many degrees they have. Hey, brother, where'd you get your MDiv? I'm not against education, but that's not the measure of a man. It's amazing sometimes at these conferences, they would never, ever, ever have a pastor of a small church. It's got to be big and dynamic because big is successful. Not all big churches are bad, mind you, but they're not all good either. It's the spiritual quality that matters. In other words, it doesn't mean we don't notice these differences or have closer ties with some than others, but basically he's saying don't overlook sin and the real value of a person and believe some are more spiritual or determine what they're really worth to God using a standard that God Himself doesn't use. A genuine faith looks past all of that. Faith proves itself by works. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Let me just say, we'll, 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 we'll mention this when we get to the passage, but many have concluded that James and Paul are teaching two different things. Paul in Romans 4, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And then you have James teaching that faith without works is dead. And many have said, well, those they don't contradict. The context is different. We'll get to that. 
But what James is teaching is, faith is eager to prove itself by how it lives. What does he mean when he says faith without works is dead? Let's say you have a body laying here. Let's say there's a corpse here. And I said, uh, I just want to introduce our guest speaker this morning. He's laying down here on the ground. And he said, isn't he dead? And I said, oh, no, no, he's there. He's got a body. Looks, looks alive. I mean, looks like a body. Yeah, but there's no pulse. There's no spirit in him. As a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith that works don't save you, but works definitely prove the reality of what you and I say we have. What a question. As here's a man that says, well, I have, I have faith and you have works. How about you prove your faith without doing anything? And I'll prove my faith by what I do. I mean, how do you prove faith without doing it? You can't. I really feel it. Good for you. It's not faith, though. Faith controls the tongue, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. He says, If any man offend not in word, verse 2, the same as a perfect man, a complete man. That, that shows the hardest member to control is the tongue. Friends, of course, the tongue is a barometer of the mind and a window into your heart. Some of you ladies have those modern Marvel appliances known as an Instapot. Whoever thought you could cook a potato in seven minutes or whatever it is. But you cook with that thing. It's not really seven minutes. That's how long it takes. But of course, it has to pressurize and then depressurize. So it's really, what, more like 25? It's kind of deceptive. But anyways... You turn before you eat. What do you do? You flip the valve. Here comes the steam. And it blows off for a while. You go, boy, that, that valve really produces steam. Actually, no, it doesn't produce steam. It just lets it out. It lets out what's been building the whole time. That's what your tongue does. Tongue problem equals heart problem. He says the tongue is a fire in verse 6. A world of iniquity. Uh, verse 10, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. He says, let me tell you a strange thing in the earth. Here's a brother's tongue, and he comes into the assembly of the saints. Hey, brother, God bless it. How are you? Let me tell you what the Lord showed me in His Word this week. Amen. He goes to work on Monday, and the most vile satanic sewage comes out of the same mouth. James is saying, are you kidding me? How many tongues do you have? The Lord wants you to have one. You have a Sunday tongue and a weekday tongue? You're a hypocrite then. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So faith is in the process of conquering the tongue, and that's the only way it can be conquered. It's by faith. A faith produces wisdom. I'm not going to go into depth on that. We'll get to it. But he, he outlines in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, godly versus carnal wisdom. And it's, it's amazing. He says, Who, who's a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? And you want to show it? Show out of a, your lifestyle with meekness. Your demeanor 
and your actions show how much wisdom you really have. He says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. It, in other words, there's a fake kind of wisdom that talks about how much it knows, how spiritual it is, how much faith it has. But you can't have a conversation with it without it exploding. And James says, if that's you, stop bragging and lying against the truth. What you have is of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now here's what godly wisdom looks like. And then he lays that out. Faith understands what real wisdom is. Again, real wisdom isn't a product of saying how much wisdom I have. It's demonstrated. A faith produces humility. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Look at verse 1. Where, from whence come wars? And fightings among you. Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You mean persecuted brethren could be carnal? Yeah. Persecution didn't take away carnality. That's a matter of nearness to God, not what's going on on the outside. It's kind of like the proverb says, only by pride cometh contention. I hear you're butting heads with somebody. James says, where do you think that comes from? Well, he started it! By the way, parents, side note. Not that your children ever have arguments. Make sure you universally apply God's truth to both sides and don't settle it with who had it first and who started it. So what? Who's exercising godly wisdom? Who's loving his brother more than himself? Who's walking in meekness? Who's willing to serve and give this up? Probably neither. You see, that encourages a godly response and not, I better get it first and then I can have it. That's how the world operates. So James says, look, these things come from your own lust, your own passions. And by the way, typically anger problem is something you think God's not giving you and that's what makes you mad. It's some passion you have that's unfulfilled and so you're lashing out. He says, these things come from your lust that war in your members. Figuratively, they're killing each other. They're hating each other. And they thought other people are keeping them from having God's best, but that wasn't the case. Friends, listen, if you and I are not experiencing the full measure of the Lord's presence and joy, it's our problem. Other people can do terrible things, no question, but they can't force their way into the secret place with God unless you open the door. He reproves their lack of asking and they're asking for the wrong reasons. You have not because you ask not, and then you ask because you ask amiss. Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. And he says, God resisteth the proud, verse 6, but gives grace to the humble. You and I are puffed up. We won't deal with sin. We think God is our genie. He's our lackey. He exists to give me what I want. Stiff arm from God. These two can't walk together except they're agreed. God giveth grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. Pushes you away. Faith produces a dependence on the God of heaven. Chapter 4, verses 13 up into chapter 5. He gives the illustration to men saying, well, let's go to the city, let's buy and sell and get gain. 
And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that in the proper place, but these guys apparently left God out of their equation. He's saying, here's what your mindset ought to be. If this is in complete subjection to the will of God, and if not, I'm going to redirect it, brother, because I'm objective, and he's my master, and I'm not. I mean, it's a good question to ask ourselves. What if God utterly prevents my, my wonderful plans? Any of you ever had that happen? I'm going to go this way. I, I'm going to do it! Oh, I'm telling you, it's not just a roadblock. It's a military fortress descends from heaven and goes, bam! And you beat on it, and you beat on it, and you beat on the door shut. How do you respond to that? How dare you? Or submission. Submission. If the Lord wills. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, faith awaits Christ's return. In the context, it's condemning the God-denying, money-loving, man-cheating lifestyle that drives the world system. That's everywhere. That's the world. I guarantee you all these conspiracies we're hearing about, friends, the thousandth of them hasn't been revealed, and it won't be until the final day. This world is vastly more corrupt than you and I are aware of. That shouldn't scare us, but should we expect anything different? As the mystery of iniquity grows in preparation for the coming of the Antichrist? He says, be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the Lord. Just like the farmer has patience. Why? He plants. I don't ever see farmers plant a, a crop and then lay there. Come on, man, you're supposed to grow. Honey, I don't know what's wrong with our garden. It just it won't grow. Well, when did you plant it? Yesterday morning. I went out there with a basket to collect corn, and it's the weirdest thing. There's nothing. 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 Well, no, he understands that it takes time to grow a crop, but you put a seed in the ground, the crop's going to come. So he's telling you and I, be patient. Establish your hearts. That means to turn resolutely in a fixed direction. So by faith, telling your heart where to look and where to go, rather than falling apart as the world falls apart. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. No matter how things appear at present. I mean, it seems like the world's lost its mind a lot of the time. It shouldn't rattle us. Job is given as an object lesson, chapter 5, verse 11, and he says, why is he given? Because the end result, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. (laughs) Chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, faith prays for the afflicted. By the way, I wonder, I, I mean, I'm not going to do this. What, what if I said, raise your hand if you believe in divine healing? Uh, some of you are like, oh, that's kind of a trick question. Do, do I believe in divine healing? It really depends what you mean. Am I talking about new crusades? led by a guy in a white suit who flies in with a Learjet and charges 20 bucks a head to cast out demons and pronounce people uh, healed. No, he's a heretic. Do I mean that God has to heal? Boy, that's a big one today. Those that believe in the continuation of apostolic gifts. Friends, the danger of that is they're trying to say if God doesn't heal, the ministry is not of God. That's baloney. Friends, the apostolic age of miracles has ceased because the Scripture, the canon, is complete. Does God have to heal to authenticate a ministry? No, He does not have to do it. 
with the apostles if they did not raise the dead, if they did not heal the sick, they were not an apostle. It's not the case today. There are no apostles. But uh, if you're talking about James 5, sometimes I fear that in running from the name it, claim it, health, wealth, prosperity, garbage, we forget that God absolutely will heal sometimes in answer to prayer. And you look at verse 15. Take, but again, you have to harmonize this with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, does verse 15, is that saying the prayer of faith shall save the sick? Does that mean if you had enough faith, you'd be healed? That's a cruel thing to say to somebody. They're, oh man. <laughs> you, by the way, do you know how many of the so-called faith healers that have said that to people have died of terrible illnesses young? You would think the first four or five would wake people up, but no, there's just another one that comes. So it, it's, I'm telling you, it's amazing. Huge amounts of these guys have died of cancer and stroke and all sorts of weird stuff, a lot of them before their time. That ought to prove the error of their teaching. So is James saying, you know what? The only reason you're sick is you don't have enough faith. No, absolutely not. Was that Paul's problem with his thorn in the flesh? Was that Timothy's problem with his stomach issues? No. Or Epaphroditus when he was sick? Or multitudes of others in the New Testament? You, no. So it's not a blanket promise that enough faith will always heal you. Not the case. But friends, it is saying God is willing to heal and answer to prayer in many cases. Now verse 14, there's a considerable discussion about the anointing with oil. I'm just going to touch on it. We'll, we'll get to it. Three primary views. One is that it's literal oil. It's pouring oil on their head. Uh, one is that oil is just a figurative statement about praying in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the third is that it's using oil as a basically medicinal, saying take an ibuprofen or an aspirin. And we'll get to that later. But the central lessons, though, sometimes, and I'm going to emphasize sometimes, physical ailment is linked to spiritual failure. Sometimes. But it is a very wrong premise to say so-and-so sick with a terrible illness, there must be some sin in their life. Oh, how dare anybody do that? Remember the Lord's words in Matthew 7, for with what judgment ye judge, it shall be meted to you again. Friends, that's not always the case. It can be. But the other central glorious lesson is that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He gives the example of Elijah praying about the rain in context of us praying about God healing people. I, I really believe this is a largely unexercised ministry. Because, you know, one of the dangers of some of these modern movements is the reaction it causes. There, uh, for instance... There's almost no emphasis on the Holy Spirit in theology a lot of times nowadays because of a wrongful teaching on the, the charismatic and health, wealth, prosperity side. And the same thing has happened with God being willing to heal sickness. There is such a thing as God healing through these means and using a church to do that. doesn't have to do it, but He can do it. But it's His way and His timetable. Lastly, chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, faith, faith confronts erring 
brethren. And when it talks about conversion here, it's again, that, that statement has to be taken in its context. Yes, it means a dramatic change of mind, but he's not talking about coming to salvation like this brother is re-saved. But he's talking about this brother repenting of sin. If any of you do err from the truth, by the way, again, does doctrine matter? Yes. If somebody goes off the doctrinal narrow way, off out into the cornfield of one of the many errors that are out there, and he says one converts him. Oh, how do you convert? Well, laboring in prayer for starters. That may be all you have to do. Which Again, notice the connection with the previous verse. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then, reclaiming an erring brother. But it, it, it can include a direct confrontation, a rebuke, a correction, a warning, a pleading, an exhortation, an admonishment. How come? Why? Friends, listen, because genuine faith, this is huge. Genuine faith doesn't treat people in relationships lightly, but genuine faith is willing to risk relationships to avoid long-term destruction. Think about that for a minute. Let's say I have a friend, and I, I'm convinced biblically, if he continues on the pathway he's on, it's going to cause massive, massive destruction. But I counsel my feelings and know as a pastor I don't like those conversations. Never have, probably never will. Wish they never had to happen. I really do. Still get knots in my stomach. But who am I really serving when I say, well, I don't want to say anything because they may be mean to me about it. What I'm saying is, I value my feelings more than your well-being. Would you want a doctor that wouldn't tell you you had stage 4 cancer because he didn't want to hurt your feelings? They get those in China, by the way, lots of them. Save face, don't tell them the truth. That's not much of a friend, that's not much of a doctor, that's not much of a Christian friend either. So... Genuine faith is willing to risk a relationship to avoid long-term destruction. And the hope is by getting involved when necessary. And, and don't get, there's a whole other side to this with discernment. I realize some don't want to hear and there's timing to this. And it doesn't mean we just jump in and blow people's head off. Every, I don't mean that, okay? I don't want to give the wrong impression. But in the leading of the Lord as these doors open that we're willing, even though we don't feel like it, to walk through them, why? Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Because there's a glorious prospect held out. If we're able to turn people back from the, from the precipice, we're able to save a soul from death. Now that seems to be referring to a case of premature death as a result of God's discipline. And many passages deal with that. There are times you and I can actually stop somebody from premature death as a Christian. 
Because the day's coming where if they persist in that direction, the Lord's going to remove them from the earth. Again, you and I don't make that determination. If somebody dies early, we don't say must have been God's discipline. That's not our, that's not our realm. But James is saying this is absolutely the case sometimes. So, save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. So, that person forsakes and confesses their evil way, which is then forgiven and forgotten by the Lord of glory. And then you think, what other collateral damage is prevented? I mean, just picture. Think back. If you were saved as an adult, think back to your old life. And think how much collateral damage there was surrounding it. Because you and I never sin in a vacuum. It affects others. Same is true as Christians, by the way. Somebody says, all my sins only affecting me. That's a bunch of baloney. (laughs) Do you know the weakening of one member of a local church weakens the whole body? I mean, look at Achan and Israel. There's sin in the camp. So James says, you can, if you have to intervene, know that you can be used to save a soul from premature death and to hide a multitude of sins. All right, now that's how this practical blunt epistle ends, right on a cliff, and that's how we're going to end it. That's, that's how he ends it. Boom, done. Curtain closed. Let me just ask you a couple questions and we'll be done. First of all, where is your faith? Who is it really in? The issue isn't how much faith you think you have. The issue is where it is. The object of faith. A building's only as strong as its foundation. Can you honestly say sitting here, my sins are gone because... I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I understand He died on that cross and He was slaughtered for my sins. I know I cannot save myself. I know I'm a hell-bound, wretched sinner without Him and that there's no other way of salvation. And by the grace of God, I've turned my back on the world. I've turned my back on the old life. He is my Master. Can you say that? Secondly, What is your faith producing? Do you have a faith that's seen? Is it seen in your family? Is it seen in your workplace? Is it seen in your acquaintances and friends? Without... And I might add, that kind of faith, because that's what it's talking about. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for James. He's certainly direct. And You've inspired this book that way. And I pray You'd help as we walk through it. Lord, to know that the cutting that Your Word does is only for our ultimate good and healing. And that whether You speak to us words of blessing and joy or words of correction, they're all motivated by a great heart of love and holiness 
that burns, burns towards us like a holy fire. Help us to be a people of faith, not, not just on paper. We go, oh, this is what we believe, but to be a people that actually lives like strangers and pilgrims on this earth because that's what you require. I pray you'd help us to be genuine disciples of Jesus and help us as we walk through this epistle to be changed more and more into thy glorious image. In Jesus' name, amen.